As we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark over these months, we've seen Jesus, or we've read again and again the words of Jesus, the message of the kingdom of God. He's been telling the people for a long time this message. Let's read together. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And now reading this morning from Mark chapter 11, the kingdom has really come as Jesus enters Jerusalem on a young donkey and the crowds gather to celebrate, to cheer, to worship, to welcome him, the arrival of the king and, we, and the prophecy of him coming on a donkey. And you can read about that in Isaiah chapter 6 and Zechariah chapter 9. It had been prophesied that the Messiah, this great king, would come humble and lowly and riding on a donkey. And so Jesus knows exactly what he is doing when he finds the smallest possible donkey, a donkey that's never been ridden before, one that's barely old enough to support his weight and says, I will take the smallest donkey I can find and I'll ride that into Jerusalem in fulfillment of prophecy. It's a deliberate action on Jesus' part. The time really is fulfilled And here comes the king. This, the week before Easter, is commonly called Holy Week. And there are lots of things that happen in this week. A full third of Mark's gospel happens in this week alone. So from chapter 11 to the end of chapter 16, a third of Mark's teaching, a third of his gospel happens this week. I do not have time to go through it all this morning. But fear not, by the end of the year, we will have gone through all of Mark chapters 1 to 16. So a lot of this we'll be coming back to in a few weeks' time. But all of that is happening here in this passage. But a thing that I love about this story, about this chunk, is my favorite parable of Jesus, the parable of the vineyard. Through all the midst of this, As Jesus is walking around Jerusalem and doing all these amazing things, he stops to tell a story, a story about a landlord and his tenants. In a previous uh, church where Talia and I were, the house was provided by the church and we got a little bit of money inherited from various places and so we said, well, we'll buy a house. So we bought our little country house in, in the town of Kalbar and we bought a little house there and we rented it out. And as soon as we bought the house and rented it out, people started saying, oh, I hope you've got good tenants. Oh, I hope you've got good tenants. And then everybody would come up with all the worst stories they'd ever told, ever heard about the worst tenants you can imagine. I heard the most terrible stories of what tenants had done to their landlord's houses, about ripping up floorboards to fuel the fire and do the whole thing. You can imagine the terrible stories we were told. We had very good tenants. The years we owned that house. We've sold the house now to buy the house in Beanley. But we had good tenants. But here in Mark chapter 12, we have a story of a landlord with some really dodgy tenants. Some really dodgy tenants. And we've read it through already. I should have had that picture up. We've read it through already this morning with the kids, but we'll read it through again just now. Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. He's done it really well. This is not a dodgy vineyard. This is done properly. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. 
At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, some others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him, threw him out of the vineyard. That's the end of the story. And then Jesus turns to his audience and says to them, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. The parable is a story with a point, and we are absolutely sure that the people who this was directed at got the point because they got annoyed. They knew this parable was about them, and they got annoyed. They were afraid of the crowd. They left him and went away, but they'll be back. This is a parable, a story with a point. Jesus is telling this story to make the point, and the point got through because the religious leaders got offended. Essentially, he's saying God made the world, and the tenants, us, and the religious leaders in charge of us have messed it all up. The prophets came and warned. Prophets came throughout the history of the nation of Israel and came and told them, this isn't good, what you're doing isn't pleasing God, but they were ignored. Or worse, they were hurt. Or worse, they were killed. And Jesus sums up his parable, his story, his history of the nation of Israel and says in verse 8, the owner of the farm said he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. I can remember doing a Christianity Explained course with someone. We worked our way through the Gospel of Mark. And in that, in that course, there's always an opportunity for people to ask questions and point things out and wonder what's going on here. And the lady I was doing this course with turned to me at this section. She pointed to this verse and said, how stupid is this man? How stupid is this man? All the other messengers have been killed and he's going to send his own son? Of course they're going to kill him. And I looked at this woman in the eyes and said, yep, that's, God's like that sometimes. He is over, to our minds, it's madness that he would send his own son. Yet that's exactly what God did. Knowing what they would do to him, he sent his son. This story is a parable, but it outlines in story form the truth, the heart of the Christian message. And the heart of the Christian message is really quite simple. Simple enough to be outlined in a few words. It's a message from the Bible about God and his son Jesus. It's about life and death. It's about the choice that we all face. And it all starts with a loving creator God. 
So if you've got your pens there, we're going to draw some pictures. We're going to try our new technology. Let's see how this goes. Yes, new. See? Well, you may mock me, young Ian. Hey, let's see how this goes. God, represented by this crown, made the world. He made it perfect. He made it very good. And he made people. And he made the people to look after the world, to care for it, and to rule over the world. So you might like to draw a simple picture like that. The first point of the Christian message is that God is in charge of the world. He is the ruler, the supreme president, the king. Unlike human rulers, whoever God always does what is best for his subjects. He's the kind of king you'd like to be ruled by. God rules the world because he made the world. Like a potter with his clay, God fashioned the world into just the shape he wished with all its amazing details. He made it and he owns it. He also made us. God created people who were something like himself and put them in charge of the world to rule it, to care for it, to be responsible for it, and to enjoy all its beauty and goodness. He appointed humanity to supervise and look after the world, but always under his own authority, honouring him and obeying his directions. You can see this represented in the illustration. God is the ruler, the crown, and humanity is created to live in Rule God's world under God's loving authority. It all sounds rather ideal. God in heaven, people ruling the world according to his directions, and everything going right. But everything is obviously not right with us or with the world. Revelation chapter 4, we read, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So into this very good world, something's gone wrong. Because is that the way it is now? No. We all reject God. Instead of having God rule over the world, we say, actually, God, we don't want you to be in charge of us. And we walk away from God and we do things our own way. Each and every one of us becomes our own little God, our own little king, someone who does things the way we want things to be done. The sad truth is that from the very beginning, men and women everywhere have rejected God by doing things their own way. We all do this. We don't live like someone telling us what to do or how to live, least of all God, and so we rebel against him in lots of different ways. We ignore him and just get on with our own lives. Or we disobey his instructions for living in his world. Or we shake our puny fists in his face and tell him to get lost. However we do it, we're all rebels because we don't live God's way. We prefer to follow our own desires, to run things our own way without God. This rebellious, self-sufficient attitude is what the Bible calls sin. The trouble is, in rejecting God, we make a mess, not only of our own lives, but of our society and the world. The whole world is full of people bent on doing what suits them and not following God's ways. 
We all act like little gods with our own crowns competing with one another. The result is misery. The suffering and injustice that we see around us all go back to our basic rebellion against God. In Romans chapter 3, we read, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. By rebelling against God, we've made a terrible mess of things. The question is, what will God do about it? God can't allow our rebellion to continue forever. So he says the punishment for rebellion is death. God cares enough about humanity to take our rebellion seriously. He calls us to account for our actions because it matters to him that we treat him and other people so poorly. In other words, he won't let the rebellion go on forever. The sentence that God passes against us is entirely just because he gives us exactly what it is we ask for. We say in rebelling against God, we say to him, go away, I don't want you, I don't want you telling me what to do. Leave me alone. And this is precisely what God does. His judgment on rebels is to withdraw from them, to cut them off from himself permanently. But since God is the source of life and of all good things, being cut off from him means death. God's judgment against rebels is an everlasting, godless death. This is a terrible thing. To fall under the sentence of God's judgment is a prospect we all face since we are all guilty of rebelling against God. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, we read, Man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Is that it then? Are we all destined for death and everlasting ruin? If not, for God's own miraculous intervention, that would be the end of the story. God's justice sounds hard, but because of his got love, God sent Jesus into the world. God sent Jesus into the world to show us what God is really like, to die in our place on the cross. There's a little J there to show that this is Jesus. Jesus always lived under God's rule. He always did what pleased God. Yet by dying in our place, he took our punishment and brought forgiveness. Because of his great love and generosity, God did not leave us to suffer the consequences of our foolish rebellion. He did something to save us. He sent his own divine son into our world to become a man, Jesus of Nazareth. Unlike us, Jesus did not rebel against God. He always lived under God's rule. He always did what God said and so did not deserve death or punishment. Yet Jesus did die. Although he had the power of God to heal the sick, to walk on water and even raise the dead, Jesus allowed himself to be executed on a cross. Why? 
The Bible rings and repeats with the incredible news that Jesus died as a substitute for us, for rebels like us. The debt that we owed God, Jesus paid by dying in our place. He took the full force of God's justice on himself so that forgiveness and pardon might be available to us. And we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. All this is quite undeserved by us. It's a generous gift from start to finish. But it's not all, because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now Jesus lives and reigns with God, his Father in heaven. So the world is back the way God intended it to be, with his son Jesus as the new man, the perfect man, ruling over the world. God accepted Jesus' death as payment in full for our sins and raised him from the dead. The risen Jesus is now what humanity has always, was always meant to be, God's ruler of the world. As God's ruler, Jesus has also been appointed God's judge of the world. The Bible promises that one day he will return to call all of us to account for our actions. In the meantime, Jesus offers us new life, both now and eternally. Now our sins can be forgiven through Jesus' death and we can make a fresh start with God, no longer as rebels but as friends. In this new life, God himself comes to live within us by his spirit. We can experience the joy of a new relationship with God. What's more, when we are pardoned through Jesus' death, we can be quite sure that when Jesus does return to judge, we will be acceptable to him. The the risen Jesus will give us eternal life, not because we've earned it, but because he has died in our place. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we read this. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, where does that leave us? It leaves us with a choice of only two ways to live. There are two ways to live. We can go on living our own way being our own little God, deciding for ourselves what's right and wrong, making our own choices, making a mess of the world. We can choose to make Jesus our king, live the way that pleases him, live in a way that's in response to what he has done for us. Each and every person has this choice. We can reject God, try to run our own life, and as a result, we'll be condemned by God and enter face and judgment. Or we can go God's new way, submit to Jesus as our ruler, rely on Jesus' death and resurrection with the result that we're forgiven, given eternal life. Sadly, many people choose to persist in running their lives their own way, the end result being that God gives us what we ask for and deserve. He condemns us for our rejection of his rightful rule of our lives. We not only have to put up with the messy consequences of rejecting him near and now, 
but we face the dreadful prospect of an eternity of separation from him without life or love or relationship. For those of us who've realized that this way is hopeless, there is a lifeline. If we turn back to God and appeal for mercy, trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, then everything changes. For a start, God wipes our slate clean. He accepts Jesus' death as payment for our sins and freely and completely forgives us. He pours his own spirit into our hearts and grants us a new life that stretches past death and into forever. We're no longer rebels, but part of God's own family as his adopted sons and daughters. We now live with Jesus as our ruler. John chapter 3, verse 36 presents these two ways. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. God's wrath remains on him. The two ways to live could not be more different. And they present you and me with some choices. Which of these two ways represents the way you want to live? How do you want to live? If your answer to this question is, I want to live my own way, then you probably don't believe some or all of anything that I've said this morning. You might not agree that God made the world. You might not agree that people rebelled against him. Hopefully we can all agree that everybody dies. That might need to be our starting place. Everybody dies. That might be the only thing where a Christian and an atheist can absolutely agree on. Everybody dies. Everything before that and everything after that we can disagree on, but that we can say this is a solid fact. And from that we can start to build, work it out. Perhaps you don't believe that God's really going to judge the rebels. Perhaps you don't think that you are a rebel. If that's that case, then please think carefully. It would be a good idea to investigate carefully the claims that have been made because if they're true, the consequences are life and death. I encourage you this morning to get a translation of the Bible, get a new modern translation, read it in English you can understand or a language you can understand. Mark's gospel is a good place to start. Or you could talk to a Christian friend. Or you could come and talk to me this morning. Or if you're listening over the radio or listening over the internet, contact us, get in touch with us. We'd love to talk to you. However, if you know that you are a rebel against God and want instead to live his way, the next obvious question is, well, what can you do about it? The first thing to do is to talk to God. You need to admit before him that you have rebelled against him, that you deserve punishment, and that you're asking for mercy on the basis of Jesus' death in your place. You'll also need to ask God to help you change from being a rebel to being someone who lives with Jesus as their ruler. The sort of prayer might go something like this. Dear God, I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you, I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me, that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me 
that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. The first step then is to pray. The second step is also fairly obvious. Having prayed the sort of prayer that we just read through there, you'll want to start putting it into practice. That is actually submitting to Jesus. There will no doubt need to be all kinds of change in your life. You'll need to get rid of your old rebellious habits like greed and selfishness and anger and start some new ones that please God, like generosity and kindness, love and patience. This second step will go on for the rest of your life. God will be with you all the way. He'll keep speaking to you through reading the Bible. He'll keep listening to you and helping you as you pray to him. He'll empower you to change and to live his way by his spirit who comes to live within you. And he'll provide brothers and sisters to encourage you along the way as you meet with other Christians. The second step then is to submit to Jesus and start living with him as your ruler. Third step is also ongoing. You need to keep putting your trust in the right place. It's only because of Jesus and his death and resurrection, that you can be forgiven and put right with God. You'll need to keep coming back to this again and again because as you start to live God's new way, you will still fail and do the wrong things. We all do. We all need to keep looking back to the death of Jesus on the cross as the only grounds for our pardon. We must never stop relying on him and him alone as the means by which we are forgiven and granted eternal life. If you know this morning that you've not yet taken these steps, if you know this morning that you are still an unforgiven rebel, then you need to do something about it. You're at a fork in the road. It's a choice that we all face. There are only two ways to live. I'm going to put the words to that prayer back on this morning. I invite you this morning, I want us all to read this prayer together. Many of us have prayed this prayer many times before. It's an opportunity again to pray this prayer. But there might be some here this morning who need to pray this prayer for the first time or to pray it again in a meaningful, heartfelt way. Let's read this prayer together. And If you're here this morning and you want to give your life to Jesus, when we get to the amen, mean it. Let's pray. Dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me, that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. If you have prayed that prayer this morning for the first time, or for the first time in a long time, please come and speak to me. I'd love to share with you and encourage you and support you. Let us pray together now. Father God, I thank you this morning for the good news. I thank you for Jesus and who he is. Father God, I thank you that you were silly enough to send your son to this world. 
as the father in that parable did, sent his son to those wicked tenants. Father God, thank you that you sent your son into this world to save us, to redeem us. You would have been well within your rights just to wipe us all to death, and just destroy us and be done with it. Father God, thank you that your love is bigger than that. Father, I pray that if there are people here this morning who've prayed that prayer for the first time, that you would come just now by your Holy Spirit and encourage them, fill them, light a fire within them. Father God, if there are people here this morning who are trusting in their own good works, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and speak to that person and encourage them and rebuke them and draw them closer to you. Trust only in Jesus and what he has done. Father God, if there are people in this room this morning or who can hear my voice this morning who are deliberately choosing to go the other way, Father God, I pray that you would give them another chance, another chance and another chance, that you would keep on drawing them, that you would keep on pestering them, that you would keep on calling them. Father God, speak to our hearts and minds this morning. Help us to trust always in the great news about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Help us to live with him as our king. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.